Genesis chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned into Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There's no fear of God in all of this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would speak to us today through your word, that you would instruct our minds, that you would give clarity to me as I speak, that you would open our ears, cause our hearts to listen. Teach us that we may not only know who you are and all that you've done for us, but that we we may love Christ and trust him more as a result. I pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for all who know The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know where the sermon title has come from. And I know I've mentioned it before, uh, but if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, in particular The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, then I will tell you the four children entered the land of Narnia having never seen, like all of us, talking animals. And so they first encounter Mr. Beaver when the four of them come in, And Mr. Beaver, of course, talks to them, and he takes them home to Mrs. Beaver, and she talks as well. And while this uh, 
idea of talking animals certainly had them surprised, they hear about one named Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure of the story. And they assumed that Aslan must be a man. But Mr. Beaver told them, no, Aslan, who is the ruler of Narnia, is a great lion. And Susan tells Mr. Beaver, I shall feel, feel, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then she asks him, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Well, I know I've used it before. I'll probably use it again. I love that line because I've come up against this in my life again and again. That God isn't safe, but he's good. In other words, he hasn't guaranteed and he certainly doesn't give us lives of comfort and ease. Got lives of pleasure and endless satisfaction. He gives us life of challenges because he's not safe, but he's good. And in the text that's before us today, Abraham gets a chance to learn this all over again. He comes up against this reality of the goodness of God. And as we see when threats or perceived threats come against him, what is his modus operandi? What does he do? He he lies. You know, he looks to his own resources. He doubts God's goodness. And in an effort to control the situation, he attempts to deceive the king. The story sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) Because it wasn't that long ago that we saw Abraham do the very same thing. In Genesis 12, when they went to Egypt to escape the famine, he had the same fear that the, the Pharaoh would take his wife because she was beautiful. And so he said to Sarah, tell them you're my sister. We might think that Abraham had learned his lesson. We might think this often of characters in Scripture, that they've learned their lesson, but it's great comfort to us all, isn't it? (laughs) Because we too struggle to learn, don't we? We too make some of the same mistakes over and over again. The God of the covenant, who is steadfast in love and abounding in grace, will indeed show Abraham once again his goodness to him. This story, I think, will hit close to home. I would guess just by the chuckles of making that statement previous that it does hit close to home because it's something that we can all identify with, that at different times in our own lives, we struggle to trust that God is good. We make an effort to do things. We make plans. Maybe it's plans to do something that will even honor God. We think it's noble. We put all the pieces together, and it all unravels and falls apart. We think, Lord, what are you doing? We're easily tempted to take matters into our own hands, maybe even tempted to sin like Abraham and deceive to try and cover up or control or rectify the situation because we struggle to believe that God is good to us. But God is not in the business of giving us lives of ease or lives of safety or lives of comfort. The men in our Wednesday morning study are going through the book of James and we've recently dealt with these words, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is what God is at work doing, making us mature, making us complete, and trials are a means to accomplish his good work in us. He's not safe, 
but he's good. And so we begin uh, in verse 1 with Abraham. Remember, he's a sojourner. He's got his you know, large flocks. He has to move them around for grazing purposes. And so they head on from where they were in Mamre, south toward Gaza to the town of Gerar. And there we see him repeat the very same actions that he did when they went to Egypt. He tells Abimelech that Sarah is his sister. And even though this is partly true, just like we saw in Genesis 12, his intention was to deceive. It didn't matter that it was technically, partially true that she was a half-sister. His intention was to deceive, and therefore he was sinning. He was sinning against Sarah. Think of the harm, again, that he put her in by doing this, harm's way. Uh, He sinned against the king. Of course, the king calls him out on this, but ultimately... He sins against God. And as we move down through the story, we see that his intention or the motivation for doing this was the fear of man. He was afraid. And so Abimelech takes Sarah, who he thinks uh, is unmarried. My dad rides a motorcycle, has since he was a teenager, so it was normal for me growing up to ride on the back with him. But when I began riding on the back... It involved, um, let's say, a little bit of yelling uh, because I was uh, not doing the right thing. When my dad would lean in a curve, I would lean the other way. Why? Because I was afraid. And so he would yell at me, and I will say that because of the wind, not because my dad was screaming at me. Uh, he would tell me, don't lean with me, don't, don't lean away. And this went on for some time. He corrected me. He instructed me. I even thought for a time I was doing it right. And yet, I continued to fail, and the fear was still there. Clearly, I wasn't learning. And so one evening, after we finished working on Saturday, he set me on the motorcycle with it parked, and he held on to my shoulders, and he explained everything to me. And then he emphasize the fact of how much harm I was putting us into by leaning away from him, and and then we went for a ride. And it was a ride I will never forget. And my dad will probably deny this to his grave, but we went really fast, and we really, <laughs> we leaned lower than we I ever remember leaning before. And I don't know if it was wisdom or fear or what, but that night I learned to lean the appropriate way, to lean with my dad instead of against my dad. Well, God is taking Abraham for a ride here. It's a repeat ride. He's doing it again to teach him a lesson. You might think of when you fall off a horse, you get back on it. Sometimes we have to have repeats of the same lessons because we just don't learn. We just don't get it. We think we do, we're trying, we think we're doing things right, and we find ourselves falling in sin over and over again. And this is especially true with this fear of man and doubting the goodness of God. It comes up in our lives again and again and again. It comes up in the small everyday stuff. Now you might not think this was everyday stuff for Abraham, but it kind of was, because this is the pattern that they were in. They were nomads. They moved around. They had to. They had to move their herds around. They were in a land as strangers. They were refugees in a sense. And so they didn't know people. And so they were all the time coming up against people where there was a big question mark. 
Will these people receive us? Will they cause us harm? Will they threaten us? This was an everyday experience for Abraham. And although we're not given all the details, we get the sense that this may not have been the only two times this happened because this was his plan from the very time they left Ur. This is what they would do. They would tell people we're brother and sister. And we saw this, what, they did this in, in, in Egypt and we see it here. But because of the, the plan that they have, you might think that they, they may have practiced this more than once. Notice how Abraham says it to Sarah. This is the kindness you must do to me. Sounds to me a lot like manipulation, which is never a recipe for success in any relationship. So there's some real dysfunction here for Abraham, the father of our faith. And so while we only see it happen once, there is at least, I won't say that it happened more than, or twice, I won't say that it happened more than twice, we don't have that, but there's at least a plan for it to happen more than these two times. These remnants of the old way of thinking present in Abraham's mindset where he is fearful. He's afraid God won't protect him. Maybe he thinks God doesn't even care. Have you ever been tempted to think that when life falls apart? When things come unravel, it just feels like, Lord, where are you? Do you not even care? Do you not know what's going on right here, right now? Something comes up unexpected, prevents us from keeping an obligation, and so we lie to protect our image. See how easy it is to fall into that trap? A conversation at lunch lunch turns to be about a person that everyone seems to enjoy degrading and we join in the gossip, just fall right into it. Life unravels a bit and we don't see a way forward or know how we're going to get out of a mess and so we just give up, binge watch TV or whatever we do. Someone lets us down or someone doesn't keep a commitment and we erupt in anger. I mean, these are all examples of ways how we respond to disappointments in life, to our, to our own sin, our own disappointments, but also the things that other people do. People are going to let us down. That's part of living in this world. Uh, how do we respond to those things? This is the everyday kind of stuff where the rubber, rubber meets the road. So do we allow the little stuff, the everyday stuff, to push our buttons, to lead us to anger or depression, to lying or to gossip? to bulldozing over others or laying back in complacency. See, our problem is the same as Abraham's. We are failing to trust that God is good and that he is powerful enough to intervene. And even when I wrote that word, powerful enough to intervene, I thought that's not even a good way to say it because that implies that God is kind of far off and that he only comes to intervene when we need him. God is sovereignly at work in our lives at all times. He doesn't need to intervene because He's actively at work at all times. He is not hands off. He works in everything, both big and small, so that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness can come to its complete end, that of our maturity and completeness that we would be lacking and nothing. Well, it doesn't take Abimelech long to realize that he had made a bad judgment listening to Abraham. He has a dream in which the very first words he hears are, you're a dead man. And it's hard for me not to hear John Wayne's voice when I read that line. I mean, think of how startling that was for him to have this kind of dream. You're a dead man. And God tells him why. He says it's because of Sarah. She's someone else's wife. 
And then he goes on to tell him that he had protected Sarah, he had protected him, he had protected all parties. And so Abimelech appeals to God. He says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Sounds a lot like Abraham's appeal on the behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't it? But what we see here from Abimelech and what we would expect from this Philistine king, a pagan king, is someone who has, like Pharaoh, no fear of God. But there's some fear of God here in Abimelech. He knows something of who God is, knows something of his character, seems to respect who God is. And God affirms him by stating in verse 6, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. We're not told until further down at the very end of the narrative that what God had done was he had struck the people there with some kind of infirmity that prevented childbirth. It was something that closed the wombs of the women, but it was something that affected both men and women. But it was the threat of death that really hung in the air. I mean, that, that threat of death has that, you know, a way of doing that, uh, that God is going to strike Abimelech in every way. He, he goes, he calls his people together, he tells them this. They're afraid, uh, truly afraid. And I think it was probably magnified by the fact that they had all witnessed whatever this infirmity was. They were themselves struck with it. And so Abimelech goes to Abraham and confronts him. And Abraham comes back with the sorriest three excuses that we could imagine. Verse 11, maybe not the sorriest we could imagine, but they're, they're lame. I did it because I thought there's no fear of God in all this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Think about that for a minute. I did it because I was afraid the people didn't fear God. What is that saying about his fear of God? He doesn't fear God. <laughs> He doesn't trust that God can protect him. He doesn't trust and fear God of knowing what he was walking into. Abraham wasn't trusting God's goodness to protect him. And we can do the same thing and make the same mistakes. Have you ever been tempted to think that God is far off, distant, not aware of my current situation, so I have to take matters into my own hands? You ever mistakenly thought, oh, God helps those who help themselves, so I better do something? Or God knows all the secret things I think about, so certainly He doesn't want to help me because He knows how wicked my heart is. You can be tempted to think of all of these things or think in these ways. They're traps. They're, they're things that we have to fight against. God is not far off. He is a present help to us. He's promised to be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps us who can't help ourselves, thankfully. And God not only knows all the secret things that we've thought and done, He has forgiven us in Christ and continues to love us. A second excuse in verse 12, Besides, she's indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not my daughter, the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. This was the little Pharisee, the little legalist rising up in Abraham. He's, he's saying, you know, technically this is true. He's using some, some legal uh, uh, positioning here to try and justify himself. And that same little legalist rises up in us. You ever found yourself doing that? You've sinned. And rather than just say, you know, I've blown it, you're, you're trying, well, the reason I did this was I was thinking that 
Abraham knew he was trying to deceive, and he did. And then verse 13, And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. It's interesting here, the words that Abraham chose doesn't come out really in the English. The word for God here is Elohim, which is typical, uh, one of the names used of God. And Elohim is plural in Hebrew, but it's usually modified by singular verbs to indicate that it's speaking of God. But here, Abraham uses it with a plural for wonder. And so it's as if Abraham, or Abraham, not as if Abraham, Abraham actually did say, the gods caused me to wonder. Listen to what Ian Duguid says. Verse 13 literally reads, When the gods caused me to wonder, Abraham made his divine call to go to the promised land sound like nothing more than the aimless wondering of a refugee. Instead of witnessing to Abimelech about God's enduring faithfulness to him over the past 25 years, he talked like one pagan to another. Instead of speaking of God's goodness to him, in spite of his own failures, he talked as if his future lay in the hands of blind fate. In his heart, he was starting to doubt that God was really good. Abraham knew better. So do we. And yet we forget. We forget stuff that we know. Let me say that again. We forget stuff that we know. We do this all the time. I'm not talking about like our phone number. (laughs) It's one thing to remember or forget our phone number. This is something that requires intentionality. It's why the scripture is filled with the command to remember. We have to be intentional about remembering. We have to be purposeful. There is no one who talks to you more than you. So make sure that you are telling yourself truth. There's no one that talks to you more than you. Those inward conversations that you have. Make sure that you are telling yourself truth. Well, the Lord is taking Abraham on another motorcycle ride of truth. He's going faster. He's going to lean lower and overpower Abraham by his goodness. Through Abimelech, God pours out these material blessings on Abraham, and in essence to say to him, I am your God, I'm going to bless you so that you can do exactly what I promised to you, to be a blessing to the other nations. My never-ending steadfast love knows no limits. More sheep, more oxen, more shekels, even the pick of the land, Abimelech gives all of this to Abraham. We saw Pharaoh do the same thing, but here even more so, the God-fearing Abimelech gives benefit to Abraham. And in turn, Abraham, who is called a prophet by God here for the first time, intercedes for the people, uh, for Abimelech and all of the people of Gerar, and God heals them and opens back the wombs of the women. Now, one of the thoughts that may go through your head, and if it doesn't, I'll just go ahead and confess this is what went through my head, is... Oh, that God would bless me materially so I would know His goodness. I mean, pour out the oxen and the sheep and the shekels and the pick of the land for me, and then I would know and trust that He was good, right? I think, uh, again, I know I overuse these examples, but Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof, you know, Perchick comes to him and says, money is the world's curse. And Tevia says, may, may God smite me with it and may I never recover. 
And it reveals what's in our hearts. That we begin to think that money will make all of our problems go away. And yet money doesn't do that for us, does it? Sometimes it creates more problems. And what it reveals is how easily we come to worship it. We worship it because we think it will solve the issues that are before us. The same is true with fear. We think that if God would keep us from all danger, that somehow we'll be content, somehow we'll trust Him, we'll believe Him, and safety becomes a God to us that we worship. We want safety more than we want to know and to love God. I love you, God, but don't take my health. I love you, God, but keep my kids on the straight and narrow. I love you, God, but don't move me from where I feel comfortable. I love you, God, but don't undo the progress that I have made. And just like with Abraham, God is not in the business of giving us our best life now, a life of convenience and ease, of comfort and security, filled with pleasure and satisfaction. Why? Because He doesn't love us? No way. It's because He does love us. And He knows what's best for us. Imagine you had a class of young children that you were supposed to teach how to paint. And you decided on the first day you would invite them in and you would feed them. You would give them video games to play. You would give them TV to watch. You would let them take naps and socialize. All things that they want and desire. Things of ease and convenience, comfort and security, pleasure and satisfaction. And yet none of those things would equip them to be painters, would it? They wouldn't, none of the students would come out of your class as painters. No, you would instruct them. You would give them assignments. You would critique their work. You would challenge them. You would give them hard things to attempt. Well, God is not in the business of making us painters. He might give some of us that gift. He is doing something far, far greater. Like with Abraham, He is equipping us to accomplish His purposes in this life and to prepare us for the life to come. He has put eternity in all of our hearts that we would long for more than this world, that we would realize that there is more than this world. And He has made a way for us to know and realize eternity by knowing forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Eternal life is what we were made for. And when sin entered the world, it brought that to a screeching halt. And yet eternity, that longing is still there. We know there's something more. And through Abraham, that promise would descend to the one who would come, who would conquer sin and death and make a way for us to come before a holy God. That promised one, Jesus, has come that we may have life. And as Jesus promised, have it abundantly. And yet our idea of abundant life is sometimes different than what Jesus Meant. Abundant life is not that all of our problems will go away. No, our problems are designed to draw us to God, to love Him and to trust Him as our good, good Father. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, 
who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Mr. Beaver was right. He's not safe, but he's good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. And even when we are tempted to believe otherwise, when the circumstances of our lives come unraveled, when things go against what we have planned, when we feel the brokenness of relationships and just the brokenness of the world, the effects of sin, Father, would you cause us not to doubt your goodness to us? Help us to see your steadfast love that never fails. Help us to see that you have kept your promises, every one. Even when everything looked like it was going to come apart and break down, you upheld your word. So may we remind ourselves of truth. May we, as we speak to ourselves, remind ourselves of truth that we would be strengthened to know that you are who you say you are, that you are good. And that you will indeed work all things together for our good who are called according to your purpose and who love you. For your glory. And Lord, we long for that completion. But until we reach the finish line, give us increased measures of faith to trust you. And Lord, in turn, as we walk in that faith, trusting you, may our lights so shine that others would see our great God and glorify you in heaven, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.